everyone. Uh, so Zach and I just got back from Command Vest Bellevue the last weekend, and we had an amazing time. Uh, we want to share with you an interview we got to do with Gavin Verhey, who is the principal magic or one of the principal magic designers at Wizards of the Coast. Uh, so we're going to jump right into that interview, and then we're going to come back, and it's just going to be me and Zach talking about our experiences at Bellevue. Uh, how we feel about the return of Command Fest and some of the biggest, most epic plays we saw this past weekend. So, I uh, hope you all enjoy. All right. Uh, hello, and welcome to the Commander Theory Podcast. I'm Nick Beatman, and I'm here with my friend, Zach Mack. <laughs> uh, today, we've got a very special guest, Gavin Verhey. Welcome to the show, Gavin. Hey, so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We are live at Command Fest Bellevue. Uh, so, stoked to be here at the event and stoked to be talking Commander with all y'all. Yes, uh, well, our listeners may know you from Good Morning Magic, but you uh, do a lot of things at Wizards. Can you tell us a little bit about your position and the types of products you work on? Yes, yeah, so I'm a principal magic designer at Wizards of the Coast. Now, I do a lot of things in my job title that are, or I do a lot of things that are outside my job title, like a lot of the front-facing stuff I do, Good Morning Magic, and so on and so forth. But in my actual day-to-day, everyday job, I'm leading the design of a lot of upcoming Commander products and helping craft the vision for Commander as a format internally. So most recently, I led the Commander Legends Battle for Ball Baldur's Gate Commander decks. Of course, when I say most recently, I actually led those well over a year ago, and I've got uh, all kinds of cool new stuff coming for you down the pipeline pretty soon. Wonderful. Uh, since you work so much on Commander Design and have worked on other products in the past, uh, can you tell us how the rules of thumb for 1v1 design are different from Commander Design? You know, when you're playing one-on-one competitive magic, your goal is just at all costs to crush the other person. It's no one's feelings are taking into account. There's no politicking or anything like that that happens when, you, when you're playing. So when you play multiplayer and you're designing for multiplayer, there's a lot of cards that, first of all, just work differently in multiplayer than a one-on-one you have to take into account. But second of all, there is always the, um, the political issue that goes into account with cards, right? So if a card is very strong but draws a lot of attention, that can actually be a negative sometimes on a card. You don't ever think about that when you're designing a card for one-on-one play. Um, additionally, playgroups get to self-rule themselves a little bit and help, you know, like, and play, help play cards that fit their playgroup and the playgroup style. Now, you've got to be careful to not create anything that's going to be ubiquitous, that's going to cause larger problems in the Rife Commander format. When you're walking into an event like Command Fest Bellevue, you don't want to have to sit down and play against people who are playing, who are constantly playing a card that's going to be a problem. But uh, there's a lot of ways you can help make sure that those cards find their homes in the right decks. One thing we do a lot in Commander Design is help think about what deck a card will go into. In Standard, often you're trying to make just sweet cards, right? You're just like, hey, maybe this will go in some, some red deck. Could be big, could be small. It's a burn spell. It's going to fit in. In Commander Design, we really are trying to not make ubiquitous, ubiquitous cards right now. Arcane Signet, for example, big mistake. We don't want to do more of those. They reduce the amount of variety in the format. So we do a lot of thinking about, okay, in this kind of niche strategy, here's a thing that could go in here. In this, in this strategy, this can go in here. Uh, there are some cards that, of course, do have broader appeal, but a lot of the times, and especially with our legend designs, we're really honing down into, let's find the kind of niche thing this will create. Because especially with the number of commander products we're creating these days, we want to make sure there's enough to go around, and slicing that pie as thin as possible lets us do that for the longest amount of time. Uh- the most recent Commander Precons have been uh, noticeably more tuned in terms of like the reprints, like the, the quality of the removal and, and ramp options. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the 
what you're putting into these pre-cons has changed over time and sort of what the goal is in terms of the types of commander games you want people to play with these pre-cons? I mean, they have changed so much. I mean, not to just plug my own stuff here, but me and Melissa DeTora have a great series. We actually go back on my channel, Good Morning Magic, and we recap and do a retrospective on all the Commander deck series, right? So we're up to Commander 2018, I think, so far. And if you go back and look at some of those 2011 decks, they're ridiculous. Like they, they have cards like there's literally a five mana three three flyer with three mana I gain shroud until end of turn. That's just a card that is in the decks. It's crazy. They have cards you would never consider playing these days. I think a few things have happened. First of all, the format has just evolved a lot. When those first decks came out, Commander was barely played. It, it was nothing compared to what it is today. So people, people just didn't know what was played. Second of all, though, uh, websites like EDHREC and so on have really honed down into, and of course Command Zone Game Nights, have really honed down into, hey, here's the Commander meta, here's what people are generally playing, here's what you have to prepare for, right? There's going to be Mana Rocks, there's going to be Ristic Study, here are the cards that, that you should put in, here's the kind of stuff that, and the way the game plays out. I think a few, a few interesting things there. One is I find that actually often I see strategies at events like this at Command Fest that totally eschew what is considered to be normal quote-unquote quote, normal for a commander deck uh, and just yeah, send a lot of those things to the curb. I played against some folks here this weekend who are like, yeah, I don't play mana rocks. I play a bunch of artifact destruction. I don't know, let's like play Shatterstorm. I was like, wow, actually, that crushed me. Like, I now feel like I got triple land destructed or whatever because I was playing, you know, because you were playing Shatterstorm and, and that's brutal. Um, so uh, th- there's, there's some stuff like that that is, um, that is important to keep in mind. Uh, so as the format has evolved and become uh, more and more well-known, our pre-con designs have evolved in suit, right? So now we use tools like EDHREC as we're building them. We've also built so many pre-cons, we kind of know how to make a lot of these things work. We have, we don't have templates. I, I don't ever want to use that word. It's not like we just are plugging things into a template. But we have a pretty good idea of how to build a pre-con and how to get things ready to go. Now, a pre-con design still takes many, 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 many months to go from start to finish. But we get, I think, to a good starting point a lot quicker now, and that helps us iterate on the finer points of the deck. So when we're talking about reprints, we're talking about those new card designs fitting into the strategy, I think we get to the point where we can care about those a lot sooner, which helps us um, iterate on them a little bit little bit tighter. Additionally, we just have a dedicated commander design team now, so the fact that we're always thinking about it um, really helps. Uh, so one major difference, of course, between commander and 1v1 formats is how much of the game takes place on your opponent's turns. Uh, when you're designing for a commander, how do you think about this, uh, the need to, like, say, hold mana up or interaction up uh, when you're designing cards? I, I think it's interesting because it's kind of true and kind of isn't true, right? Like, you have in competitive constructed, like, permission decks, which are always holding mana up on their opponent's turns to wait, where in commander, most commander decks, almost all commander decks, I would say, unless they're very specifically flash-focused or someone plays a Vidalcan Ori, are about doing stuff in your main phase and occasionally holding up mana to do other things. Now, you want to leave up some mana to bluff sometimes. You might have a Swords of Plowshares or a Counterspell, or you want to like activate some abilities, and you have three opponent's turns worth of time that those interactions may occur. But I think, actually, Commander is more of a main phase format than uh, many other competitive formats out there in Magic. Um, but we do think about this stuff a lot. We think a lot about threat of activation. Uh, we want to make sure that, for example, there aren't activated abilities on the board, which you constantly have to think about, which grind the game to a halt, right? Things that allow you to kill things at instant speed or do things that are on the table that are easy to forget about can be frustrating and problematic in Commander. So we think and think about that a lot. But, but in general, I feel like the amount of my turn versus your turn in Commander is in a pretty healthy spot, right? You have some decks that are like big, dumb green decks that are just tapping out every turn to cast their stuff. You have some decks that are a little more tricky in holding things up. But in general, I find that a lot of Commander 
a lot of the core of your deck happens on your turn. And you have abilities, uh, a handful of abilities and cheap spells you might interact with on your opponent's turns. And I'm pretty happy with where it's at. Are there any plans to put out new casual multiplayer products to complement Commander? Some things like Plane Chase, Arch Enemy, um, uh, any, anything like that? I mean, I love all that kind of stuff. I mean, I was the lead designer of Battle Bond. I uh, worked on the conspiracy sets. I've always loved Plane Chase and Arch Enemy. So I would love for us to do that kind of stuff in the future. And I think as we continue to do more Commander decks and more Commander products, we're going to try and find ways to differentiate them from each other, right? So what is this one doing that previous ones aren't? Or do we not do Commander this time and we do a different thing instead? So I think that's stuff that we're certainly happy to explore. And uh, whether or not it happens, well, you have to wait and see. Uh, what kinds of things is Wizards doing to bridge the gap between arena players and paper players? Is this in terms of commander or just in terms of general? In general. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that you know, arena has been an excellent gateway into paper for a lot of people. I've talked to so many people this weekend. And you know, for reference, this is actually my fourth command fest. I've been to a ton of these so far. And I've talked to so many players who are like, I started playing on arena during the pandemic. And I think, I mean, Arena's great. I love Arena. It's doing a lot of really cool things. But ultimately, playing in person with other people is the most powerful thing in, mag in Magic, right? It's like that communi uh, the community is, is awesome. And so I think a natural path for Arena is to have people play in paper eventually. Now, it's awesome you can build your skills on Arena. It's awesome that when it's 2 a.m. and I can't sleep, I can play some games on Arena. It's awesome that there's a competitive ladder on Arena. Like, all that's awesome, and I love being able to jam games on there. But I think little replaces the in-person environment. So creating tunnels between the two is, one, a very natural thing to happen. I think players will just have that natural back and forth. But also there are ways to incentivize you to go in and do things. For example, during uh, the past couple of years, we ran a promotion where you could do stuff on uh, in your store, and then I think you got a code to go enter an Arena, right? So there is some back and forth things happening there, and we're always looking at more ways to do that. So can't say what any of those ways might be, but there's a lot of back and forth potential between the real life and arena play. Quick, quick question about Universes Beyond. I know this isn't fully your wheelhouse, but hoping you can answer it. Uh, will Universes Beyond generally be aimed at the more casual end of the spectrum? Well, I think Universes Beyond has a very wide range. One of the things, of the many things, Universes Beyond can do, and yeah, to level set the conversation, I don't really work a ton on Universes Beyond stuff. I don't help plan the Universes Beyond stuff out. Um, but I, I, I do know one of the big goals of Universes Beyond is to help make sure that we can bring people in who might not normally be interested in magic, right? When you make a Lord of the Rings set, you get a lot of eyes on the set for people who just love Lord of the Rings and might get into magic through, through that audience, right? But I think there's a huge tonal swing, right? If you look at Warhammer 40K, that is as gritty and dark as a property as it basically gets, right? Their genre is literally called grimdark. And then when you look at a secret lair, like the, the Fortnite secret lair that we did, well, that's, that's pretty light and fun, right? And while I wouldn't expect us to be doing, you know, the Toll House cookies secret lair anytime soon or whatever, um, I, I think that there is a pretty wide tonal range and every secret lair has a different audience and different reasons, right? With Warhammer, we're going to look at other people who play games. The Warhammer Hammer audience are ostensibly gamers for the most part, uh, or people who love painting miniatures and uh, fans of the genre. And those folks are going to come in and I would not call that casual. I, I would, uh, in fact, I would very much call, not call Warhammer players casual. But I think with Fortnite, you have people who might never touch magic who like Fortnite. Maybe they are casual Fortnite players who paid attention. The Arcane Secret Lair, another great example of like, oh, I watched Arcane, I loved Arcane, and it's coming out with a cool magic collaboration, and that just gets people excited. So I think there's going to be a very wide range of stuff you'll see for UB. And I think, like, anything that's new in magic, you know, when we create a new card type, when we make vehicles, for example, for the first time, or planeswalkers for the first time, you've seen us spend several sets exploring what that could do right? What are all the vehicles we could make? What's all the different kind of planeswalkers we could make? What design space is there? 
And with universes beyond, I predict it's going to be very similar. We're going to be spend a bunch of time trying out what works and what doesn't, right? Uh, where are the bounding box for things? What do players like? What do they not like? Maybe we learn that stuff like Lord of the Rings, which is yeah, pretty close to magic. It's, it's just swords and sorcery and, you know, it all makes sense. is fine. And stuff that is way out, out of the realm is not. You know, maybe there's different dividing lines there. Maybe it all turns out great. Everyone loves everything. You know, maybe we learn other things from it. But whatever, whatever the case is, we're going to try things out and learn from them. And I think that's the core of where we are. And we've seen so little so far with Universes Beyond. We've seen a few secret lairs. Um, and, and really, like, that's it, right? So I think we'll learn a lot when Warhammer 40K comes out. I think we'll learn a lot when uh, Lord of the Rings comes out and, you know, any other future projects we have we have in that department. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to answer all these questions. Uh, is there anything else you want to say in terms of where people can find you if they want to ask more? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is, sounds very facetious, but I always just say that if you Google me, you can find me everywhere. Uh, but, you know, add me on Twitter, add me on Instagram, TikTok. Of course, most of all, go follow me on Good Morning Magic on YouTube. I've got videos three days a week where you can check out all kinds of cool stuff about magic design. Wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Gavin, and uh, enjoy the rest of Command Fest Bellevue. Yeah, thanks to all of you for listening, and hope you all are enjoying Commander as well. Thank you so much for being play the playing the game. Without you, we wouldn't have awesome cards to make. Like, we, we, making it would mean nothing. So it really is about the players. So thank you so much. All right. Uh, so we hope you all enjoyed that interview, and now it's just me and Zach. And Zach, how do you want to start this off tell me about your experience at command fest bellevue um and how you enjoyed your weekend yeah well let's talk about like the event structure first because if people weren't there they might not understand kind of what was going on um so the event was set up as a three-day event um there were a few different passes you got day passes there was three-day passes and there's three-day plus passes uh, and really the difference was one day passes, you kind of just got into the casual play area and you got um, some swag, you got like a cool soul ring. Uh, and I think you got the play mat for signing up for the one day passes, but you get some cool stuff um, and some path of ancestries. The three day passes got all of the above plus um, some credit for playing inside events. And the three day plus passes got all of that plus even more swag and like entry into certain tournaments and whatnot. Um, so also of, an exclusive uh, cocktail party that's worth yes mentioning. yes absolutely true um which we did not go to we were not uh we were not <laughs> at that <laughs> cocktail party so if you were at it or if you had a friend go let us know like what it was like um if they enjoyed themselves if it was worth it um because we i think part of this episode is going to be us saying like hey that was fun and we want to keep doing them um but the whole area was basically um there's a panel area, there's a stage uh, that kind of just opened up into the room where uh, when panels were happening, you could listen. If you wanted to sit and watch, there's a like seating area and then nearby were the tables for like scheduled events. And the scheduled events um, were a whole bunch of different things. It was not a super big variety, but it was a pretty wide variety. There was like two at a giant commander tournaments. There was CDH. There's a lot of Baldur's Gate draft and sealed and two at a giant. Well, actually, there was no two-headed giant Baldur's Gate because we would have played that. <laughs> um, there's also like Mystery Booster that sold out almost immediately. Um, there's a bunch of other side events that you could partake in um, and you would get tickets and there's a prize wall like GPs of the past. Um, so that was one thing. There's the free play area where you just, as long as you had a pass, you could go sit down and that was kind of the biggest area of the hall where you could just find games. If you couldn't find games, uh, it was pastime events set up everything and you could go to a judge and they could help you find a game they had little like table markers 
Um, so like if you were having trouble or you just are like not the type of person to walk up to strangers and go, Hey, you look like you're and antsy for a game. Do you want to, can I, can I sit down with y'all? Then they can make it a little bit easier on you, which was, I think very good. It's a very good idea. Yeah. The matchmaking system uh, at this event was a lot better than we've seen in pre COVID command fest, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. They had basically three tiers. I can't remember what they all started with C, but I can't remember what they all, it was like casual, competitive and challenging. Ch- challenging. Yeah. Right? Challenging was the middle ground between casual and competitive. Yeah. And so competitive really like encompassed, um, basically like CEDH or like very, very well tuned EDH. And then, uh, casual was like, I threw together my like Minotaur tribal list and that's kind of what, what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it worked out pretty well. Um, we'll get into like what decks we played against and whatnot in a second. But, um, though, I think, uh, the last thing was like artists and vendors uh, in the center of the hall were all the artists, which actually I think was a pretty good idea. It like split up the space between the um, like intro area and the events and the play like open play area. And then vendors just flanked everybody. So on all sides, if you wanted to find dice or packs or like D&D books or T-shirts or whatever it was, like those were all around everywhere. So there's a decent amount of stuff to do. And honestly, like these always go by really quickly when we were playing at uh, magic, the gathering Las Vegas or GPs in the past, you basically sit down and you're like, Oh my God, it's dinner time. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so they, they go by very, very fast. So you just have to make sure you're taking care of yourself. You're kind of planning ahead. You know what you're going to do for the most part. Um, and it taught me some lessons about like scheduling and especially on our end, like getting interviews and stuff in the future. So um, that was kind of the structure of the event. How did you feel about the structure? Was anything missing? Was anything like right on the money? Like what was your like perception of all of that? Uh, so I think that the structure of the event worked out pretty well. Um, like I mentioned, the matchmaking was much better than previous years. Um, I, I think that the panels were a great idea. I really enjoyed some of the panels that I attended. And of course, like, you know, we were lucky enough to be able to work with pastimes and record some of those panels. So please uh, give a listen. They're, they're just in our feed. Um, especially check out the um, casual play design panel with a bunch of Wizards employees. I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and I hope we get... Uh, I think that might be a rare treat just because Bellevue is so close to Renton. Uh, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to get that level of exclusive information and Wizards collaboration at future events. Hopefully that we we might but um not certain that's going to be the case but the um I, I agree like the the layout of the of the convention was great of the command fest huge amount of space dedicated to casual play and and just commander open play and it was so easy to find games and and the also just like the folks there were so great like i um Honestly, like I, I don't think I had a bad game the whole weekend. All the people I played with were really cool. Uh, we got to run into a lot, uh, some some of our fans, a lot of content creators who were uh, amazing to hang out with. Um, so I, I think just the the overall the experience was really positive for me, and I think that the way it was organized really contributed to that. I, I'm not sure, like how I'm I'm hoping the model was sustainable. Um, I'm wondering like if they could add either like more panels or different kinds of events or something else, something auxiliary, make it feel a little bit 
like even more convention-y um, mm-hmm. to make sure it has the legs to go like even further. But for the most part, I was I was very happy as like a magic player to attend this event. So all in all, like very fun, very cool. It was much more chill. Um, and pretty much just everyone was there to have a good time, which like not that people who go to like PTQs and GPs weren't like going to have fun. Like it is still magic. You're still playing magic. But with the focus being so much on like a casual format, like commander in particular, it really felt like very laid back, um, very nice, very open. Everyone was pretty much happy to to talk or um, just kind of do whatever. I got in a game of CDH borrowing someone's game because they're just like, yeah, we're, we're having trouble finding somebody right now. So if you want to borrow a deck and I was like, yeah, sure. So it was that was pretty much the vibe the whole time <laughs> was like, mm-hmm. I just want to play magic with you. And that's a that's a great space to be in. Um, and it was very safe. We, we'd heard stories about Orlando um, where not a lot of people were wearing masks, but pretty much everyone in Bellevue, uh, like us, and everyone we talked to was wearing a mask the entire time. So mm-hmm. it was more or less the opposite experience. Um, so I would just maybe if these command fests have happened in a town near you before, look at what that situation was like. If you're feeling awkward or, or uh, not quite safe enough to go out, check on what it was like last time. That's probably going to be a pretty good indication of what's going to happen this time. And I would guess that in the future, if uh, COVID is still kind of as it is and you're you're not feeling super safe or whatnot, then um, look at how past events went to kind of judge. But I would say that Bellevue in particular, Seattle events, are going to be pretty safe. Um, as with most conventions and things that have been happening, a lot of the people who have been getting COVID got it outside of the event (laughs) so um just be safe you know like make good decisions and and use your best judgment but for the most part uh yeah i i don't think there's a single person not wearing a mask in the hall you know it Mm -hmm. was it was pretty good and you had to do vaccination or covid tests so yeah all of that was very safe Um, but i guess let's get into like the nitty-gritty of like what do you want to get into our decks or the opponent's decks first? Like, what what did you... I, let's do what What did you see first. So who who were you playing against? What were they playing? What were the games like? Uh, I mean, I, I played against everyone. I played a couple CDH games. Um, and I, I played a lot sort of at the um, power level I'm typically used to, sort of like 7 to 8 range. And I did play against some folks who were running some less tuned builds. Um, so there, there was a variety. I think that in part because of like the um, increased quality of the precons, like people are entering the format at a higher level than they used to, and so I think like the the scale of or the power scale of decks is maybe uh, the. I think the floor has been lowered in ten in terms of like what you might see at a convention. Or sorry, the floor has been raised uh, in terms of what you might see at a convention. Yeah. Um. So I saw. I mean, so many different things. I saw Morophon, Eldrazi Tribal. I saw. Um. Uh. Let's see. Sweet Werewolf deck. A lot of people playing new commanders from Baldur's Gate, like a Sweet Mirim deck. I, I saw a ton of stuff over the weekend. Uh. D- just really uh, awesome decks and really enjoyed the games i played i didn't really um i didn't really like 
see anything that sort of broke the social contract. Um, even in like the C the CEDH game, it was just like, Oh, there was like a thorn of amethyst and like, uh, a lot of effects that didn't really mess me up that badly. Like, um, there was like a psychic surgery and a suppression field, but like not all of my decks run fetches or, and, or like, and not all of, and most of my decks don't really run any tutors. So like, it's kind of funny how, um, a lot of these like really meta CEDH cards, I was able to dodge the effect of a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but in my like non CEDH games, it's just uh, a lot of people sort of doing their own proactive thing um, rather than like trying super hard to control their opponents. And I, and you know, of course like there are um, there's nothing wrong with wanting to play control or anything, but it seemed like the, the feel I got generally was everyone tries to do their own thing and has fun and whoever wins wins um, rather than like a lot of give and take between, you know, wiping the board frequently or, or a lot of counter spells and stuff. That's that was just like my experience. I don't know if your games were different. No, that's pretty much where it was. Like there was a range in that. Um, like I'm hesitant to use like the number system, but like in that kind of like tuned casual, like, area where um something that i noticed like people aren't running as many wraths as like i was used to or mm-hmm. that i'd seen in previous events um hexproof and shroud were a lot better um than like in our play group at home or um even at like past gps or other things um so that was really interesting there's a lot more spot revo- removal a lot less like board wipes and what that meant was that like if you built up a board quickly in general you were doing pretty well so uh, i'll get to that more when we talk about uh decks we were playing but for the most part it was yeah if someone was going to play stacks or if someone was going to um, play a um so i did end up playing against uh someone who was very nice who played a toshiro umazawa and uh they asked ahead of time. They're like, "Hey, is this cool?" And everyone was like, "Yeah, that's cool. We're kind of done for whatever." Uh, and that deck obviously is, can lend itself to being very controlling. So Tetsu, uh, Toshiro Umazawa uh, casts instants from the graveyard when your opponent's creatures die, and a lot of black instants happen to be kill spells and and other kind of controly effects. So um, that that was a long game, but it was kind of a game that like everyone kind of. I chimed in on and was like, yeah, no, this is fine. So no hurt feelings, no anything like that. Um, so yeah, that was that was one of the biggest things I noticed was like pretty much every game was very fun. Everyone kind of brought a similar power level of deck for the most part within like a certain range. And if like someone wasn't down, they either would like not sit down at the table, like they'd sit down and be like, oh, what do you want to play? And if they didn't like what they hear, they'd they'd be like, Oh, okay, I'm going to dip out or whatever. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty good. Anyone who wanted to play against stacks and stuff consented to doing so (laughs) and it was fine. So that was really cool. Um, yeah, I saw a pretty wide margin of decks, uh, not that much aggro, which I thought was interesting. Um, and the aggro that I did see was good. Uh, it was like fairly strong, uh, like wrath or die kind of stuff, which was interesting that there was so few wraths to me. I was like, oh wow, mm-hmm. this seems like a pretty popular thing to do. 
I'm amazed that like people aren't doing it that much or that often. Rathing boards, I mean. Um, yeah. But other than that, yeah, it was it was good. It seemed like there wasn't really any mismatch compared to what we pat saw in the past. But it also like really kind of showed me what types of decks to bring to these events in the future. Because mm-hmm. I brought four, and two of them were perfect, great, amazing, and two of them were uh, just kind of duds. <laughs> and uh, do you want to get into yours, and I'll get into mine after that. <laughs> Well, I do, I do just want to say one last thing before I get into my decks. Um, oh, sure. Which is just that w- one thing that's different about this event's structure to, compared to some Command Fest we've seen in the past. Uh, I think when we went to Command Fest Vegas a couple of years ago, the way it worked at the time was uh, like you would essentially get together a pod of people by going to like this event organizer and they would give you a set number of tickets that would be then distributed among the people. And the norm that emerged over the weekend uh, was that everyone sort of gets their equal share of the tickets when they leave. Like it's not, you know, winner take all or anything, or, or at least that it, that's the way it was. And maybe among the, the more casual and, and less competitive tables. Um, but the fact that there was sort of an incentive for winning in some cases, like some, you know, sometimes people would pressure their opponents to, mm, to put their true, tickets true. on the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, you know, incentivized kind of pub stompy behavior. Whereas this one, there's no tickets at all. Like you just sit down and play people. There's no stakes. And I think that contributed to better matches in deck power level and, and just more fun for everyone. Mm-hmm. No, I, I actually, that is a huge good point to make. Like, it it dis if you wanted to pub stop or try to win or something like that they actually even had two separate categories of events so you could play Baldur's Gate casual where you drafted a deck for Baldur's Gate and you just kind of got everyone got flat tickets and got to play and then there's competitive where you got a smaller amount of flat tickets and then uh, for each win you got more so you could come out higher than the casual but if you just wanted to play you could still get some tickets too um, so that was interesting and that was also something i forgot to mention so thank you for bringing that up mm-hmm. uh but in terms of my decks and like how i thought they performed one deck that like really overperformed over the course of the weekend was um adeline resplendent cathar mm-hmm. so i mean i i knew it was good when it first got spoiled um but i actually hadn't built it until just recently and so i took it to um to Bellevue and like, Oh, I'll be able to get some more reps in and see how it plays. And it was, so it, it won two games, uh, in quick succession. And I decided, okay, I'm just not going to play this for the rest of the weekend. Uh, because one of those games actually only cast four spells during (laughs) the entire game. Uh, I went turn one soul ring, turn two Adeline, turn three Cathar's crusade. Uh, somebody killed my Adeline and I recast her. And that was my fourth spell. And I was able to win just doing that. Um, so that's kind of when I decided like, okay, maybe I just don't break this out anymore. Um, and then I actually like pulled it out once we got into a CEDH pod just to see how it would fare there. And it also did really, really well. Like it killed uh, it killed two people and then got the last guy down to four before, uh, I, before I got killed. So, uh, Adeline, yeah, 
really not that difficult to make powerful. Um, I mean, it's great to see like aggro commanders that are designed to be successful and mono white commanders that are, that can be successful. Um, but keep an eye out for that one because like you may find that it's a little bit too powerful for your meta, even without putting a ton of effort into it. That actually, I think is a huge point. I think it's important a huge distinction between this event and other events was how strong white and mono white was like really the last few years have given mono white so many tools and just juiced the color so much actually contributing to like the strategies that are good, giving it new ways to open up. Uh, Adeline is a perfect example of that, of like white was always kind of a token color and now it's like the token color. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. it just comes down fast and hard and it's very good. Um, so seeing all of these like juiced white decks was actually really cool. And it, it really did lend to a diversified field. Um, I, I played against a variety of different colors of different commanders. Um, I'm trying to think I did play against one commander more than others. And now I can't remember. Oh, Miram, the, the new dragon commander, the Timur dragons. Mm. Um, that was interesting to me that that was the most popular, Commander. So, um, uh, let me read Miram. Miram with two eyes, right? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, man, I M-I-I-R-Y-M. Um, I I R Y M. Oh, that Y's at the end. All right. So, Miram being the deck I saw the most still doesn't mean I saw it that often, which I thought was really interesting. I probably played against like two or three. But like I didn't really play against repeat decks other than that. But Miram Sentinel Worm is a 6-6 Dragon Spirit uh, for 6 mana, 3 green, blue, red. And you probably know this, but it's flying. It has Ward 2, and whenever another non-token dragon enters the battlefield under your control, create a token that's a copy of it, except the token isn't legendary, if that dragon is legendary. Um, we talked about this in the set review as like you could it's probably one of the best like clone commanders you could use. Um, and what I ended up seeing was, uh, and I saw it at tables that I wasn't playing at too, was people mostly played dragons and had like a few clones for like fun shenanigans. Mm-hmm. So it seems like that's where the deck kind of has landed. It's not like all in on a bunch of clones of Miram, but it's also like a lot better than I thought it was. It um, Ward 2 actually does more work than you think it would, which is kind of crazy. Um, it's just enough of a mana like investment to like kind of throw you off your game and you're like, oh, well, I have to leave three up for my path. Like that kind of sucks. So that yeah. was interesting. Mm-hmm. Miram definitely seems like one of the commanders that benefits from the format moving away from board wipes um, because mm-hmm. spot removal is so terrible against it. Um, it. It just and like its ability to really make the board go wide pretty quickly um you know you cast miram and then play one or two dragons the following turn and suddenly you have like a really threatening board with just a ton of power already fewer people like interact on a mass scale miram's just able to kind of snowball and run away with the game yeah and which it which it did (laughs) a few (laughs) times um just because of that you're like okay i can take care of miram this one time but oh, now they have two like ancient copper dragons or something like that. And I took care of the Miriam, but 
have to take care of these dragons or, or vice versa. You're like, Oh, I've dealt with the copper dragons, but Miriam is still here. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, I usually run board wipes in my decks, but, um, I only run like two or three of them. So if Miriam comes out swinging and I haven't dug that deep into my deck yet, like it's not very likely to have been able to find an answer. So, uh, and, and I purposefully brought decks that didn't wipe and maybe that's actually what we're seeing too in this data is like people foregoing on board clears in favor of like uh more battle cruisery and or faster games like more pro social games Mm -hmm. um which is something i will talk next time we go to one of these events i'll start asking people like hey uh how are you guys feeling about wraths like do you have wraths in your decks and stuff like that and just because now I'm curious because I didn't really talk to anyone about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that might be the case. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, it's like sort of like, I mean, I guess we've spoken before about strategies that are at an advantage more due to like the constraints, the social constraints placed on the format um, rather than like just the the pure rock, paper, scissors of the cards. Like, you know, we've always known that uh, land-based ramp is at a big advantage in commander because nobody wants to take the the social hit from casting an Armageddon or something. Um, and yeah, similarly, if the social contract is starting to weed out board wipes, then that definitely has some implica- implications for how people like design their decks and and maybe going wide is a better strategy than it has been in the past. And because in like, you know, the 2010 meta, uh, I had a friend who built a deck that was just like pretty much every board wipe he could get his hands on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then compared to these days where, you know, it seems like people are only packing a a handful or or even just a couple in their decks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this interesting, interesting points. I think time will tell because <laughs> it yeah. was not really something I was looking for. Like literally sitting down to record this podcast is the first time I went like, oh, I did that. Maybe other people <laughs> do that. <laughs> so interesting. But yeah. Um, so Adeline worked really well for you. What else did you notice about the decks that you brought? Um, so honestly, like one or two of the decks I brought, I just didn't uh, really in tend to win with like my cadena mm-hmm. list um it doesn't really have any strong win cons it's just i i like the feel of playing morphs and you know being sneaky and flipping up and, and getting somebody with will bender every single game um but that one of course like just didn't win much because i didn't have any win conditions in it and that was fine i enjoyed playing it anyway um i also brought millicent spirits and that one performed pretty well like it just naturally has a lot of evasion um outside of like the dragon matchups i mean flying's still good in commander and the deck just has some very very powerful uh, some very very powerful like anthem effects like you know mirror entity or coat of arms that'll just get there and it has access to like blue and white interaction so there's lots of um cheap counter spells and, and cheap removal that you you can use so that went pretty well. Um, I'd say like uh, 
I didn't really, there were a couple times that I regretted just not having something on an even lower power level. Like I naturally mm-hmm. try to tune my decks. Um, typically like my process for balancing is like, I find a commander where like, even if you tune it really well, it's not going to be crazy powerful. Like unless you totally throw away the theme, like maybe if I just built Cadena as Sultai good stuff, it could be like more powerful, but I, I want to like find a commit. I want to find commanders where like, if I lean into the theme, there is a maximum possible power level for them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that, and, and cause I enjoy tuning decks and I want to sort of hit that cap as, or as close as I can. Um, and not feel like I'm really constraining myself. But the problem is like, I just didn't have anything that could hang at like the much lower power level. Like when we're getting down to like, you know, if, if we're going to use the 10 point scale, sort of like the fives or below. Um, Cause you know, I ran into a deck that it was like five color, but it seemed like almost all their lands were basics. Um, yeah. and it's like, uh, I don't really have something at that power level with me and Mm -hmm. so that was a little bit of a mismatch i want to make sure to like maybe find a way to brew something that can hang at that very low power level for future command fests but overall i think i had uh relative i was relatively balanced against what i was seeing Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's definitely true and i think something to take away from this is that like that lower like tier of like the fives and lowers basically wasn't very present at this like command fest. And I, I'm assuming that that's kind of going to be the future moving forward because I would imagine if you were to open up one of like just a pre-con these days and start playing it, that that's at least a six nowadays, you know, like Mm -hmm. they're putting in interaction, they're putting in good cards and like staple effects um, there's like an Avenger Zendikar in one of the decks, you know, like, like there's a ton of good stuff on top of the good new cards, like in the party deck, like you got what, like three staples for white and black mm-hmm. within that deck. And all you had to do was spend like 35 to 45 bucks, depending on your online retailer or local game store, you know, like that, that's a pretty good entry point for a new player where you can, you could buy one of these decks sit down at a command fest and like have some pretty good games with people. So I think that like lower tier of, of kind of like janky clunky decks isn't really what you're going to find at these kind of events anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that wizards can support players though, um, mm-hmm. by making maybe more five color precons. And it is great that they are doing that for Dominaria United. Um, but it'll just give players a starting point for seeing like what a five color mana base should look like. I, I think just the more we can provide precons that are templates for players, um, the less rocky people's entry into the format is going to be. Cause like everyone I think like maybe not everyone, but a lot of people when they first start playing magic, like they have a five color deck at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's tough. I mean, it's a hard lesson to learn, like just how difficult it can be to cast your spells. And it's not even going to be obvious to a very new player, like why they are losing. Um, mm-hmm. 
if they don't have something to compare it to. If there isn't a five color precon they can look at and see like, oh, this deck has almost no basics. That's really different from mine. And then they'll like try playing it and like, oh, this deck can actually cast its spells. (laughs) Maybe maybe these two uh, data points are related to each other, these two phenomena. Um, But... Uh, so I, I think I'm glad Wizards is, is moving into that space. Um, and yeah, I th- think that they should be using the precons um, to teach the most common or like teach players how to do everything they want to do. Because you look at EDH rec, there's a lot of five color decks on there. I think that no having some sort of guidance for building five color is something that is like a need for players that Mm -hmm. hasn't been addressed up to up until now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So yeah, I'm excited to see what the five color deck is going to be and what it's going to be like, because I do think it'll help fix some of that problem. Um, So do you care if I talk about, I I just kind of have one lesson that I, uh, learned with my decks that I brought it, that I wanted to to get into, if that's sure. okay. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I brought four decks, like I said, um, and the two decks that performed very well was I have a Timna and Baron Sengir, and this was a Timna list I've talked about before, where I just wanted to see if one drops could be good in Commander. So the deck currently has twelve one drops in it, thirteen one drops, something like that. I can't, I forgot, but um, and. They're everything from like Hope of Girapur, uh, Viscera Seer, uh, the Kami that fogs, um, Kami of Lost Hope. Is that what that is? Uh, False Hope. False Hope, yes. Um, so that kind of stuff. But then it also does have like um, the like Sarah Ascendant type stuff, the one drop that's very big early turns and stuff like that. So. Typically, I like playing that deck in the higher power games in general because, like, even though I'm not doing anything like crazy powerful, I get to take many game actions and I kind of get in under, like, underneath a lot of people. So I feel like even if I've lost, I've been doing stuff, and the deck can definitely win. So it had some new additions from the uh, Baldur's Gate, and I was excited to play it. Very much like overperformed. I didn't necessarily win every game I played, but. Um, it worked very well in like CEDH groups because they don't necessarily always have an answer for a 6-6 six, six on turn one um, or something like that. And uh, Timna just kind of keeps the card flow going, even if I'm not doing the uh, really busted 1 in 99 chance to have that going. Um, so that, that was interesting that that was good because it's definitely not a CEDH deck. I'm not comboing with it. I'm not doing anything. Plan B is Baron Sengir. He's mostly there so I can cast Stinging Study and draw six cards for five mana uh, at instant speed. But is fine and uh, definitely won a game by attacking people with Baron Sengir for like eight plus damage. Um, and the other one that was very good was Pirates. And uh, I have a Dargo and Malcolm like partners pirate list. Uh, mostly because I like Dargo, but I didn't want to combo with him. So I was like, what am I going to do? Well, I'll just play all the pirates. And it turns out just making a ton of treasure and having a bunch of pirates, like it's kind of a paint by numbers thing, but then there's other very strong cards in it because I just like a lot of Izzet cards. And I was trying to play these cards without like comboing like i said but it turns out playing like a soldier of fortune and like a two drop pirate uh, on turn two and like getting treasure and like just being able to cast your 
spells in general is kind of all you need to be competitive in a meta like the one that we are playing in. Um, Dargo isn't crazy. He's just a 7-5 for, uh, quote, 7 mana. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But that did a lot of work. Um, I have Buccaneer's Bravado in the deck, which is one and a red for an instant. Its target creature gets plus one, plus one in first strike if it's not a pirate, or target creature gets plus one, plus one in double strike if it's a pirate. Uh, so I could noob tube people sometimes, but not all the time. I think I killed, I think the only person I killed this weekend with that was Nick, which is pretty <laughs> funny. But yeah, just like that tribal deck, which is the only deck I have a Dockside Extortionist in right now, and it's not even like I can't combo with it. It's just like, look at all these treasures that I got and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, still yeah, would you say that like, good. would you say that Dockside generated more treasure for you or Lightning Rig Crew? Absolutely Lightning Rig Crew. All weekend, Lightning Rig Crew was probably the MVP. And people were like blown away by it too. They're like, all right, turn three, your Lightning Rig Crew. And they're like, okay. And it's like, okay, turn four, Malcolm, ping you all, like cast a pirate, ping you all, cast a pirate. And they're like, what? Because it doesn't really matter what the pirate is with Lightning Rig Crew. Just that it is a pirate. It could be like a janky 2-1 flyer that when it attacks, like makes something a 0-1. It could be the the jumpstart pirate lord where your pirates get plus one, plus one, and you get a treasure when it enters. It could be a soldier of fortune, a 1-4 for three that gives you a treasure. Like It doesn't really matter. It just matters that you untapped your guy and pinged a bunch of things and now dargo is also a lot cheaper um yeah it's 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 so funny that in the malcolm deck like lightning rig crew is kind of like a three mana rooftop storm for pirates like yeah absolutely your ability to just vomit your hand onto the board uh is was so impressive sitting across the table from you yeah it was really funny uh that card absolutely is overperformed um so that was really interesting and again it's another deck where it's a case of like it did very well because there were very few board wipes so like it doesn't really matter that like i had a one four and a whatever because if i played a captain vargas um vargas wrath and attacked like they all got plus four plus four because i've cast dargo like i've been throwing dargo at people and like not really caring about their blocks because i could just cast them again so like that deck very like overperformed my expectations. And a, a big part of that was lightning red crew. And a big part of that was the lack of uh, mass board wipes that mm-hmm. I expected to see. I did play two games where there is the, um, what's the Kamigawa uh, spirit that you have attacks on all your artifacts. What's that? Oh, guy called? Uh, oh, I know. God, I have it in my deck. Um, yeah. It's Kataki like, wars wage. Yes. Kataki wars wage. So I did play a few games with Kataki out, which kind of nerfed my strategy a few times. Um, so once with you twice with other people. Um, and honestly, that's fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it was like, okay, now I can't just like go off. I have to be smart about what I'm doing. And those games were fun. It was fun to like, play those games and the the puzzle that that caused for me so that was really interesting um yeah the- I'm, I'm glad you brought it up like kataki had really overperformed for me over the course of the weekend um not only just like hosing treasure uh that was of course very good but even i mean i ran into a couple other artifact decks and i had to like tell the person i had to just like say you know i want this to be a fun game i don't want to just completely shut them down 
but I recognized that I could absolutely shut them down for two mana here. Um, and so I was just running it like in my spirit deck. It's, it's on theme. Yeah. Um, but definitely like uh, a hate bear that's gained a lot of value, especially as treasure has become more prominent. Mm hmm. Yeah, that was also another thing. Like treasure just was something I saw most games. Like mm-hmm. there were a lot of games where even if it wasn't like a theme, I saw like a deadly dispute or um the white <laughs> smothering tithe. I'm like for some reason I can't remember card names today. So smothering tithe was everywhere and just uh other podcasts have talked about this, like the ubiquity of very strong treasure cards means that you're just going to see treasure often, even if treasure is a strategy isn't something that you're going to see. So my pirate deck treasure is a strategy. So that's the whole uh, one of the big points of the deck, but I just saw treasure in general because of these very strong cards, dock sides, whatnot. Um, So because of that, a lot of these like Katakis and uh, other artifact hosers that at one point were pretty marginal were actually really good. Titania Song was also another card that I saw pretty often, or Collector Oaf. Um, so it was interesting. It's interesting to see these cards kind of go up in value in people's minds and in mine over the course of the weekend. I was like, oh wow, that actually like did a pretty good job shutting this down, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I wasn't expecting. Um, and on the flip side, I brought some pretty battle cruisery decks, and they did not perform very well. Um, Mostly because there's just not a lot of interaction. Like I said, they're battle cruisery. I figured I was going to play against more of that. Uh, and the problem with them is that they follow this like exponential growth curve, where for the first few games or first few turns of the game, I do nothing, and then it's like boom, and I either like kill somebody or I have like every land in my deck on the battlefield or draw a bunch of cards, like something like that. And those decks performed very poorly because uh, it was either incredibly mismatched or I just died before I could get to that point. Um, so in the casual games, people felt, uh, well, I'd actually died before I got to explode on any game. The the only game that really, I kind of went off quote, quote was again, playing with Nick one time, uh, with my Joel rail Empress of Vesalis, which I really love. And a friend convinced me to take to, um, command fest because he really likes that deck. He thinks it's really interesting. He's like, I think other people like it too. Problem was, it's just kind of like, it's like mono green ramp into, like your five mana commander with the three mana activated ability that you pitch two cards to like animate lands. So there's a lot of buildup there. So it takes a few turns to get going. A lot of the time when I start doing stuff in that deck, I'm at like 18 to 26 life from being attacked by people, just not really having defenses. And then I can do a bunch of stuff. Um, And that's whatever. That's fine. I like that in general, but at this event, like, didn't really get to do much (laughs) it was it was like oh wow if i don't do something now on turn six i die but the only thing i can really do is like cast my commander and another like in an explorer or something like that and like pass so um that was an interesting lesson where like the battle cruiseriness of the format has changed very much uh i brought my calamax which is very similar uh, very dependent on Calamax, and I have a lot of ways to protect him in the deck. But if I get a slow start, I was just way behind everybody because I couldn't just cast Calamax. There, I knew there's a bunch of spot removal everywhere, um, so I had to have Calamax and like one to two like Autumn's Veils or um, the Disdainful Strokes or Force of Negation, you know, like something mm-hmm. to keep him around. Otherwise, I knew I just wasn't going to really get to play that game. So that was really interesting too, like. 
decks that were very reliant on the commander were um, not as good. And that was an interesting lesson for me. Okay, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about just like big, splashy plays uh, we saw over the course of the weekend. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, And the one that stood out most to me was I was playing, it was a pod with um, Mirim, uh, a pod with with, uh, Boros Angels, um, and then I think like Jans Jansen, and then I was playing Morphs. Uh, and at one point, the Miram deck had out two Wrathful Red Dragons. Um, so Wrathful Red Dragon, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, is five mana, five, five, flying dragon. Uh, whenever a dragon you control is dealt damage, it deals that much damage to any target that isn't a dragon. So uh, one player had two of those out, and the Boros Angel player uh, kind of just well really like the whole pod came together just to make something big happen because the boros angel player played a copy of gisella uh and then cast blasphemous act and in response to the blasphemous act i flipped up a vesuvian doppelganger to make a copy of this gisella so uh for each dragon it received like 13 from the blasphemous act doubled from gisella a double again from gisella b so 52 damage on the Wrathful Red Dragons, which then they which they then redirected uh, and were able to shoot players for. Well, depending on like depending on who they're hitting, it, it's up to another like quadrupling. Yeah. So another so like if they they hit the Jans Jansen player, then that was uh, 208 damage uh, just from one of these dragons that were being hit. And then like me and the other Gisele players who had Gisela's uh, sort of like doubled and halved. So we just took a mere 52 from each of these dragons. <laughs> uh, but it was wild. Like the, the damage output was absolutely insane. Uh, so that was like the coolest thing that happened that weekend. But did you see any like big splashy, amazing plays? I think the uh, biggest play that I saw was pretty simple. It was just like an arc bond um, that ended up killing a lot of us. <laughs> and so arc bond is a two and a red instant. And I always try to play this card and it never works out, but it's, it says uh, when target creature would take damage this turn, uh, you may deal that much damage to each other creature and each player. Um, so it's from, uh, I think, it's either Dragons of Card Fate Tarkir, Reforged. Fate Reforged, yeah, it's from that block. I think, yeah, I think you're right, Fate Reforged. Um, very, very specific particular card, and uh, there was a game where um, somebody, it was a, I think it also was a Miram game, and they uh, had copied Balefire Dragon, uh, and the Balefire Dragon came in and hit somebody. So 12 damage was coming in and the person uh, arc bonded. And then, um, oh, man, I can't remember the other card. It like uh, it was the overblaze because it was um, the creature deals the damage with arc bond. So they overblazed it and killed like three people with this like big, like out of nowhere play. Uh, they were playing an Aurelia deck. Um so they had a bunch of like fun Boros things, which also like was super juiced. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Aurelia like has always been a pretty good 
deck, even with the uh, limitations that were pushed on it with card draw and whatnot over the years. But like now it's just like, just simply a good deck, <laughs> you know, like I don't think it's like, oh, it's the only good Boros deck. It's like one of the good Boros decks now because of all of the cool things it's gotten. But that was really cool. Um, the The biggest play I got to do was, uh, again, against Nick, I animated all of Nick's lands and tried to Azuri's Predation him. So well, you succeed. Well, well, you scooped. I made you scoop. I, well, okay, fine. I did scoop in response. <laughs> yeah, which is good. It was good. Um, and then I died the next turn to a uh, an Amber Gristle Mall um, that uh, attacked me, unblockable, because uh, I forgot there was a key to the city. <laughs> there. So, oops. Um, so that was fun. It was good. But yeah, in general, I think those were the. I mean, there's a lot of cool plays. There's a lot of cool games. A lot of cool things happen. But I think those are the splashiest things that I saw. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, next, I just want to talk about like maybe uh, we'll call this like miscellaneous. Just uh, there's one thing I want to talk about that didn't really fit into any other category. Um, and that's uh, we ran into. Well, I, I guess like Zach ran into him, but <laughs> we found this guy who had been tracking. Uh, all of the numbers people had chosen every time he saw Wheel of Misfortune cast. Oh, man. Okay, yes. And so I'm so sorry because I cannot remember their name, but they were friends with Blake, who I think listens to the show. So uh, please hit us up. Email us. Hit us up on Twitter. Um, because we, yeah, we do want to credit you for this because yeah. it was a fantastic resource, I think, for yeah, listeners. Absolutely. But yeah, you do want to get into to what the research had found up to that point? Y- yes. Uh, so... Um, in terms of like people who sort of wanted to hit the sweet spot, like the, the, the bell curve of, or like the distribution of like, uh, secret numbers was pretty heavily centered on like four and five and like a little bit on six, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so just like, keep that in mind. If you're, I mean, obviously if you're not just picking zero to keep your hand, if you actually like want to, uh, you know, play the mind game and try to get your cards without taking too much damage. It seems like picking six is pretty safe just because like of how heavily it was stacked at four and five and like seven seems like almost a sure thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so outside of like weird situations where it's like one V one and you really, really need these cards. Um, I, yeah. I think like six or seven is probably the place to pick to just have a very high chance of getting your cards without spending too much life. Yeah, because there's definitely like a 22 on the list, but that was kind of the Spider's George of like numbers mm-hmm. where the guy was like, yeah, my friend picked 22 because the friend was at 21 mm-hmm. and he just really wanted him not to <laughs> draw the seven. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so there, Honestly, there's... Honestly, that, that sounds like stuff. a misplay. He could have just paid 21. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then they both not do anything. No, they both would lose life, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm saying if he picked 21 as his as his secret number, like his opponent couldn't match that without dying if he was at 21. Oh, yeah, that's true. Anyway. That's fun. Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, it was cool. It was good. It definitely actually, I immediately got to use that information like with the next two or three games. Um, like I was amazed. So the sweet spot in our group that we play with, because uh, me, Nick, a bunch of people have been playing Wheel of Misfortune um since it came out 
I'm actually was, like surprised it's as cheap as it is, I given like how <laughs> commonly we see it played. Mm-hmm. Um, and, maybe and people are just not too. down for like goblin game type stuff. But oh man, they're it, wrong. It's, it's a great card. Yeah, if you're it's listening fun. to this and you don't like Wheel of Misfortune, like I beg you to try, please. Mm-hmm. It's it's fun. It's funny. Um, it it does slow the game down a little bit, but it does it to speed it up again immediately afterwards. Like games don't last too much longer after you cast a Wheel of Misfortune, but like in a good way because someone took seven, uh, a bunch of people got new hands. The people that didn't get new hands are vastly behind <laughs> what's going well, on. Well, unless they like had uh, you know, like a grip of seven or eight. With. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's good. It was. It, it's always been a good time for me. Um, but yeah, I, with, in our group, it was always like five. And many times, like most of us picked five and then nothing happened because everyone picked five. Um, but I haven't seen like the I have not yet seen the Wheel of Misfortune where everyone chooses the exact number. That must have happened. Yeah, it uh, happened. The exact that, same number. Yeah, we, it, it did happen. Um, it was like a month ago or something like that. And I can talk more about it after the show. But we were with some friends who were seasoned veterans at this point, uh, And I guess we all thought that that would be fine or that someone else was going to pick zero or something. And then <laughs> we all picked five. That's so funny. Pretty funny. Um, but yeah, it seemed that the consensus was much more extreme out in the wild. So uh, five and four wasn't always going to get it necessarily, which I thought was very interesting. But mm-hmm. in general, it, it gets it because most people pick four or five. Yeah, um, it, I mean, it is great that like, you know, our play group is sort of validate or like is consistent with his results. Like if we mm-hmm. have all independently through our playing have like sort of settled around five to the point where we're all submitting the exact same number. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that seems like it's definitely like validating what he's seen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so very interesting. Uh, very, uh, very cool. There's just so many like little metrics for like these casual games that I wasn't paying attention to that like this weekend kind of made me pay attention to the white, the treasure, the treasure hosers, um, the the board wipes, um, <laughs> keeping track of your wheel misfortune plays. So very cool stuff. Um, and it was very fun. So I, I highly, highly would recommend if you are feeling safe, if you're feeling good, if you have the, the income or the time, like go out to one of these command fests. Um, there's going to be more of them and uh, they're very fun. They're going to try and get them all over the, the the country, all over the world. I'm pretty sure they're going to be run by different event teams outside of the U S but Pastimes has been doing a lot of the ones um, in the U S uh, cascade does some of them particularly at like conventions and stuff. I know they say that they're not on their website, but um, if you go to like an anime convention or like San Diego comic-con this year, which we had to miss because of Bellevue, um, that kind of stuff. Cascade is usually the people there. So there's a few different people putting them on star city games is still having events and whatnot. So um, definitely go out, play, get that gathering back in. And uh, hopefully this episode kind of gives you a little bit of insight into like what you might find there when you're going out as well. Um, What would you say your top tips would be for folks looking to uh, go to a command fest, maybe for the first time or, or maybe, for the first time since COVID, for first time in a long time, perhaps. Um, what are your top tips? Yeah, I think, uh, so, I mean, one of the big ones is you don't need to bring as many decks as you think. 
So you don't want to weigh your back down. You don't need to have like the big, uh, like, uh, construction box deck box of like mm-hmm. all like 15 of your decks or whatever. Um, just bring a few, you'll be happier. Uh, you won't be worried about losing them cause they're a lot of investment. Um, so that, yeah. that's one thing I, I, would I brought say. four. I think I would have been happy with like maybe one more lower powered one, but I don't, I did not need to bring my like 15 or so. Yeah. 15 or 20 decks, whatever. Yeah. I, I felt the same. I brought four and I honestly should have just brought three and I guess be prepared to, uh, try, try to have, I, I guess instead of saying like have a low power deck and have a high power deck, I would say have a deck that focuses on like getting stuff down early, whether that's aggro or not, and having a deck that like builds up more. So for me, Timna and Baron Sengir, or the Sengir the the Dark Baron, um, is that one. I it didn't really matter that like my top end wasn't super crazy because I I could build a machine, I could make some things come back. Um, but I started playing on turn one pretty much every game all the time. So there's, I could get in, it could hang with like the big dogs, like the really crazy, like more CEDH decks and whatnot. Um, because of that, um, and pirates, which like wants to build up, wants to play more things. Um, those two ended up being in the best spots that I had the most fun with. Um, and they both kind of lent themselves to like starting really early and like getting going a little bit later, um, so that's kind of what I would recommend, like not necessarily like bring a CDH deck, bring a seven, bring a five, like bring a two or something like that. Just try and make sure you have decks where the play styles kind of fit into different like turn ranges. You're like, OK, well, for this deck, I want to make sure my like Adelies is down on turn two and blah, blah, blah. That one's probably good for starting early where like uh Slimefoot the Stowaway is probably pretty good for building up late and having like that big late game kind of play, like that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I would recommend that. Um, and I don't know, just uh, use your words. <laughs> the, I think one of the reasons that the games were so good is that everyone kind of sat down and was like, uh, I did get a lot of like, oh, I'm playing a seven. And I would always go, no, no, no. How much fast mana do you have? Like, are you comboing? Uh, are you okay with comboing? Uh, is there any stacks like those were the questions that I asked and I got pretty much good games every time. Um, it turns out that for me, it seemed like fast mana was the highest indicator of if the game was going to be balanced. So like if we all were playing fast mana, mana vaults, birds of paradises, mana elves, whatever, um, that game is pretty balanced. Uh, and if we all were, playing just rampant growths cultivates uh sky shroud claims like the the bigger old school kind of uh commander ramp spells then that game was going to be balanced with those decks so that was my other big takeaway um so yeah i don't know if you have any other little nuggets of wisdom for people uh no i i think uh you you hit on pretty much everything i wanted to say um uh this is just, I mean, like, try to find a hotel early. Uh, try to find one close to the convention center. Uh, we were lucky enough to be walking distance, and that was incredibly convenient. Yeah, um, very good. Uh, also, you know, give your try to get like like we got there sort of uh, 
Thursday afternoon when the event didn't really start until Friday. And so we did get a little time to see Seattle. Uh, definitely try to do that if you can give yourself because uh, c- it is, you know, exhausting to do traveling immediately, you mm-hmm. know, travel immediately, hop into the event, uh, then travel again. So give yourself some breathing room if you can and try to see this, the sites of the place you're going to. Mm-hmm. But other than that, not, not really. Uh, I think that's all I have to say on the subject of uh, Command Fest value. I had a great time um, and I'm really hoping to head out to more Command Fests in the future. So um, please, you know, if you're planning to go to some of the ones that get scheduled, maybe in the later half of the year or early next year, just let us know. And uh, we're always happy to meet up with our fans and jam some games with you. Yeah. Yeah. And it, again, if you uh, if you saw us, if you play games with us, say hi, say on the internet, if you're listening right now. Um, hello, thanks for playing with us. It was really good to, to meet everybody, to to see everybody, see some faces from like GP Vegas from a few years ago and whatnot. So um, yeah, it was great. And uh, just get out there and play some games and have fun. All right. Uh, well, with that, I'm going to give a brief thank you to our Patreon patrons. They are Gustav, Addison, Rick, Raphael, Kyle, Laser, Charlotte, the White Clays, Hannah, James, Logan, Roger, Bryce, Dylan, Benjamin, Jamie, Matthew, Kyle, Brandon, Kevin, Jeremy, Russell, Dylan, Micah, Troy, Roxanne, Charles, Daniel, Andrew, Jason, Paul, Johan, Jonathan, Christian, Jim, Andrea, Vasilios, Logan, Frugal, Riddle, Carl, Oscar, Danny B, Mifflin, Jean-Francois, Drew, Recta, Nick, BJ, and Cameron. Thank you all for supporting the show. And if you're not currently a Patreon patron, but would like to become one, please check us out at patreon.com slash commander theory. Thanks for listening. You can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at commander theory. And on Twitter, I am at fat Bartleby. You can also email us at commander theory at gmail.com. Our theme song is Lincoln Continental by Nick Cage. You can check him out on SoundCloud. And if you're interested in some other creative products I'm working on, I have a band you can check out. We are a pink punk, pop punk band called The Have Nots, all one word like Cosmonauts. Uh, You can listen to all of our music for free right now. You can just head over to thehavenots.bandcamp.com. That is T-H-E-H-A-V-N-A-U-T-S.bandcamp.com. And check us out. Let me know what you think.